Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good afternoon and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is all about the heart. Before we get started, I wanted to offer up that we love hearing from our listeners, and we would love for you to join our conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag HarvestingHappiness. Today we're focusing on heroism, but the heroism that occurs in everyday life. Not all of us go out and perform miraculous acts of courage and strength that save the world on a daily basis, but many of us in our day-to-day lives perform little acts of heroism or personal acts of courage and valor that may change the outcome of something that was headed in the wrong direction, may save someone, or it may just be standing up in our own boots to overcome a situation that has challenged us. And my guest this morning is Dr. Philip Zimbardo. He is one of the most distinguished living psychologists, having served as president of the American Psychological Association. He's designed and narrated the award-winning 26-part PBS series, Discovering Psychology. He's published more than 50 books, authored more than 400 professional and popular articles and chapters, among them Shyness, The Lucifer Effect, The Time Cure, and The Time Paradox. He is a professor emeritus at Stanford University. Dr. Zimbardo has spent more than 50 years teaching and studying psychology. He received his Ph.D. in psychology from Yale University, and his areas of focus include time perspective, shyness, terrorism, 
Madness, and Evil. He might be best known for his controversial Stanford prison experiment that highlighted the ease with which ordinary intelligent college students could cross the line between good and evil when caught up in the matrix of situational and systemic forces. Dr. Zimbardo currently lectures worldwide and is actively working to promote his nonprofit, the Heroic Imagination Project, or HIP. His current research <laughs> looks at the psychology of heroism. Welcome, Dr. Zimbardo. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Lisa. What a great introduction. On the other hand, it makes me tired <laughs> thinking of all that work I've done. <laughs> well, you have certainly... Um, created uh, a very auspicious body of work and I'm, I'm grateful to be able to share you and your work with our listeners. Let's talk about the Heroic Imagination Project because sure. in particular this you know in the realm of happiness, well-being, um, sustainability is um, a very interesting component that actually can generate a huge positive effect. Yes, um, so, so I'm very happy to share my um ideas, and especially uh, let your listeners know about our Heroic Imagination Project. Uh, let me start back a few years ago. I was uh, privileged to have a public dialogue with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And as you know, the Dalai Lama believes that uh, uh, his goal is to spread compassion around the world, and with compassion, he is the model of perpetual happiness. Uh, my problem is, having grown up in a ghetto in the South Bronx, where evil is endemic, where there are bad guys whose job it is to get good kids to do bad things for money, uh, I began by asking him a provocative question. Does he believe that compassion alone is enough in a world filled with evil? Doesn't compassion have to be socially engaged? Uh, and he kind of hemmed and hawed, and at the end he said, maybe. Well, my point is that compassion, uh, here, here, here's um, uh, the, um, uh, the triad of, of action. So compassion is really at, at a foundation. Compassion is a cognitive process, caring, caring about others, understanding others' suffering. And then empathy is the emotion component where you feel someone's suffering. Um, and then, but they don't change anything in and of themselves. They change the person who is the observer or the experiencing, uh, uh, experiential person. Uh, now, then, with those, uh, there is uh, happiness. With, with those, uh, there is um, altruism is, is a, a social action. But it's it's a minimal action. You give you give you donate blood. You, you give money to your uh, uh, charity. Heroism, however, is the highest civic virtue. If if compassion is the highest private virtue, heroism is the highest civic virtue. That means you're willing to make a sacrifice on behalf of other people. So heroism is sociocentric, and the enemy of heroism is egocentricity. Uh, and you do that aware of risks and costs and dangers. So there are a lot of definitions of heroism. Mine is, uh, it's an action, it's a behavior uh, on behalf of others in need, or it could be in defense of a moral principle. Uh, and 
the link between compassion and empathy and heroism, I think, is moral courage. Now, it's not clear how you measure it, but that's really the motivational state that links thoughts and feelings with action. Uh, and so this is the kind of thing we're trying to understand at the Heroic Imagination Project with research, with education. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> and of course, at the foundation of all of this, you put that together and this is the way you lead a positive, happy, fulfilling life. Indeed. And I love what you say about moral courage because there is a different in the types of courage. There's the courage that you are fearful of something, you go out and you do it anyway. You push through the fear um, and, and go out and, and do some act. But the moral courage that you're speaking of is, I think, what I'm hearing is about having the valor to stand apart, to stay mm-hmm. true to one's uh, moral compass or true north. Absolutely. Now, so the other thing, Lisa, is that heroes are always deviants, so that a lot of the work we do focuses on the bystander effect, meaning uh, to understand it and share these ideas that when you're in a situation and someone's in need, the more people present, the paradox is, the less likely anyone is to help. That is, that's, that's the bystander effect. That is, you look around and if nobody's helping, the norm is do nothing. And so uh, if, you are, if you are the person suffering, the last thing you want is a crowd. <laughs> you want one person, <laughs> one person around you, and you say, you, help me, and, the, and people will. So when we see the bystander effect, we say, gee, people are uncaring, they're callous. Not at all. Soon, so that's the power of social norms. So that's one of the things I've been studying for, for years, that our behavior is so much influenced by the social context, by the social norms, by what other people are doing, by what we imagine other people are thinking of us. And we have to rise above that and say, it doesn't matter what other people are thinking of us. I have to do the right thing in this situation. I have to take action. And the curious thing is once you act, once you do a heroic deed, immediately in seconds, you will be joined by someone else because you change the norm. The norm then is do something. Mm. You say something, you just said something that I absolutely love. I think it's brilliant, is that heroes are deviants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I, there is, that, that's an absolute truth because what sets that hero apart is their willingness to act in some cases without thinking, that because it was simply the right thing to do. Yeah, so, so heroes are positive deviants. I mean, obviously... Positive, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously deviants can be raggedy, raggedy, uh, you know, doing stupid stuff. No, but heroes are positive deviants. They, they say, I look around, nobody's doing this, and by doing it, I become a deviant. So we had this wonderful case in New York City uh, two years ago uh, of this uh, African-American a man, uh, Wesley Autry, He's a 50-year-old African-American man. He's standing on a subway in New York City. Uh, I, I think it was City College, 138th Street. I'm, I'm an old New Yorker. And a, a guy falls across the tracks. There's 75 people on, this, on the platform waiting for the subway, and no one does anything. He's got a reason not to be involved. He's got two little girls with him. Instead, he turns to a stranger and says, please take care of my kids. He jumps down on the railroad on the tracks, and what he has to do is get this guy whose, whose body is laying across the tracks, meaning he will be cut in half when the train, subway comes in. And you know if you're in New York, a subway's come on average every three minutes. 
he puts them between the tracks, lays on top, presses them down, and at that moment, the train goes over over them. He saves the guy, but it was only a half inch between the top of Wesley Autry's head and the bottom of the train, which meant he would have been decapitated. So that's an impulsive, reactive hero. We don't promote we don't promote that kind of hero because uh, that is not the wise thing to do. I mean, he could have jumped down, pulled the guy to the platform, asked for help, pulled the guy up onto the platform, and saved his life. So the two kinds of heroes are impulsive, reactive, and the other kind is reflective, proactive. That is, you think about what to do, and again, in this case, you got to think quickly. But one of the things we promote at the Heroic Imagination Project is imagining yourself in different situations. <clears throat> what are the strategies you would use? What are the skills you would uh, yeah, are necessary? And in many cases, to be a hero, you have to have skills. I mean, you have to. You don't jump into a river to save a drowning child if you don't know how to swim. Well, learn how to swim. Learn first aid. Uh, uh, you should. You should. Everybody should take first aid uh, uh, courses uh, so that if there's an accident, you know how to do resuscitation and so forth. Uh, but the basic skills are really starting with. We call it situational awareness. In the ghetto, you call it street savvy. Meaning, in every situation you're in, you analyze what's happening, uh, who who's involved, uh, who the, who the good people, who the potential enemies, uh, where is the exit, what can I do, do I need help, uh, how can I organize a hero squad? So the other thing is, we try to promote, get away from the old notion of, you know, the traditional male loner hero, and th- these were the heroes. These are warriors. These are these are. Uh, you know, men who are prepared uh, in battle, to die in battle, to kill in battle. And that eliminates most women. So women, we know, are much more effective in creating heroic networks. So there's a whole history from the uh, Holocaust of women who organized networks because they had to move Jewish children from family to family, home to home, and then out of the danger zone. So women, because they are used to social networks, are much more likely to be heroic uh, in creating these kinds of hero ensembles, if you will. We are going to go to a break, and when we come back, we're going to carry on the conversation with Dr. Zimbardo about the Heroic Imagination Project. To learn more, please visit heroicimagination.org, on Facebook, Dr. Philip Zimbardo, and on Twitter, Phil Zimbardo. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back to carry on the conversation about heroism in the 21st century. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com.
Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I am delighted to have in studio Dr. Philip Zimbardo. I'm so sorry. He is the founder of the Heroic Imagination Project, HIP, but he's also a prolific author, professor. He is a professor emeritus at Stanford University where he uh, did this amazing project called the Stanford Prison experiment and maybe we'll talk about that Uh, maybe we won't maybe maybe we'll have to have you back to talk about that but in in any case he is amazing he has served as the president of the american psychological association and designed and narrated pbs series but we're talking about his latest project which is about defining everyday heroism in the 21st century you know what it takes to be a hero in our own life to go out into the world and perform these random loving acts of heroism. And Dr. Zimbardo, during the break, we, we, we talked briefly about the notion of, in addition to compassion that you speak of with the Dalai Lama, this cultivation of love and how love creates heroism. Yeah, see, again, um, having grown up in the South Bronx in the ghetto, having worked with uh, uh, really poor children in Brazil in the favelas, what you see is a lot of these kids never get touched, never get touched in an affectionate way. Uh, nobody ever says, I love you. Nobody ever gives them a hug. So uh, when I visited uh, one of these, um, in the favelas, um, uh, many women have a huge number of children because they're Catholic uh, and they don't practice birth control. And so when, when there are too many children to sleep on the eight by 10, piece of rubber on the floor, the oldest child gets sent to the streets. And the only way they survive is by stealing, robbing, uh, taking drugs, selling drugs. And they get arrested, they get beaten up by the police. But there's a place they can go to get a lunch um, if, if they hitch a, a, a bus or a trolley. And I went to, to visit and you know, while we we're talking, having lunch with the kids, I said, hey, would you like to sit in my lap? And this was a, probably a seven or eight year old kid the kid was like a baby, just like melted in my arms. And it was clear this kid had never been touched. So that's what you've been saying, the power of love. And I'm sure if you had more time, you could, you could begin to talk to them about, hey, life could be different. 
uh, talk about going to school. Uh, and none of these kids go to school, for example. The importance of education, the importance of caring. The other thing is, in all of this, so many children no longer have a father. See, mothers give love unconditionally. I love you no matter what. Fathers give love conditionally. You got to perform. You can't come home with a D. You got to get a, You got to get good grades. You got to, you know, make the team, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And now, sadly, in America, America leads the world in fatherlessness. So, so it's a it's a major problem for boys. Uh, I talked about it in. I gave a a talk at TED, and I wrote a book called "On the Demise of Guys," talking about uh, the. Uh, the failure of young men, and now this is true around the world, in part with the absence of a father to motivate them to succeed. They are failing in school. They are failing socially. And now, and the alternative is they live in a world of videos, uh, video games and, and online pornography. And so they are socially isolating themselves. So it's a whole new phenomenon. So they, they absent themselves from the human connection. So we can't give them love because they're stuck in their room playing video games and watching pornography. You said something extremely important about fathers teaching us accountability. Right. And I, I, I think that makes sense because in order to be a hero, one must be accountable for one's actions. For so sure. If you, if, if you you know play that out a little bit further down the line from a child as he or she is growing up, if they've never learned these skills of how to be accountable, then how can we expect them to go out in the world and perform these everyday heroic acts, for, yes. even to show up in their own lives, let alone for someone else? Yeah. So, so again, it's it's I'm trying to in quote normalize and simplify the whole concept of heroism. So. And essentially, we want to say, what are the social activities that are associated with being an everyday hero? So we call it everyday hero, ordinary hero. It's, it's little acts of kindness. It's little acts of caring. It's little acts of, it's almost like the Boy Scout motto taken, taken to the extreme. It's, it's what you do automatically every day. In every situation I go in, I look around, who can I help? Uh, so one of the so we have a whole set of activities on our website that you mentioned earlier, heroicimagination.org, called social fitness. Make somebody feel special every day this week. That's that's an assignment for, for your listeners. How do you do that? You give a compliment, a justifiable compliment, uh, and you start with something external. You know how lovely that scarf is, and makes you look really e e even more lovely. Uh, uh, I like what you said about that. I, you, you tell wonderful jokes. Um, you know, so you make people feel. And you, how do you know it works? They smile. They say thanks. Mm -hmm. Nobody gives compliments. Why? Because it feels awkward. But again, uh, it's putting into practice these very simple ideas. So it's really being a deviant. <laughs> by, by being a hero in that sense is being a deviant. And so and then you build you build up on it. Um, uh, that each day you think of what can I do, for example, to make somebody smile. So that's one activity. Make somebody smile with or without a compliment. Uh, but it's really noticing other people. So when you go into a situation, instead of being egocentric saying, will people notice me? Will they like me? Will they think I'm smart? Will they think I'm a cool guy? You go in saying who needs my help? You look around, there's always going to be shy people. You know, I did a lot of work on shyness. The world is almost half filled with shy people. So who's sitting in the corner? Yeah. So one of the keys is to be uh, alert for situational awareness. 
that in every situation you go, you go in, so for example, anytime you go in, into a new uh, public venue, you always check the exits in case there is a fire. But psychologically, instead of just checking exits, you check the entrances. You look around, you see who the shy, who the shy people, who could use a compliment, who could use a smile, who could use a, a friendly uh, uh, touch on the shoulder, who could use a handshake. That's being a positive deviant. And I think that's, for me, that's one of the keys to being a successful uh, everyday hero. And, and practice makes permanent. You know, the, when we start to take this on as a practice and create everyday awareness and commit to these very simple acts on a daily basis, it just becomes habit. And it, be, and, and it, it inevitably raises the bar of our own mood and the moods of people around us. Absolutely, Lisa. So it, it's really building the social habits of heroism. You see, the traditional view of heroes are people who did one uh, glorious uh, deed of bravery uh, in a battle. Uh, um, but essentially, really what you want to get is people building daily habits of heroism, little things you do every day, deeds of kindness, deeds of caring. Um, it's putting the Boy Scout oath into daily practice, for example. Uh, so, so this is what we want to encourage for everybody to be um, on the path of social training in heroism. Which creates a more civil, mannerly, reverent society. And I bet if you were to do a long-term study on this, it, 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 that you would see, I mean, the, the effects would be huge. You know, crime would go down. Um, there would be a lot uh, less health problems probably because there would be a lot less stress in the environment. It, it, it is a very simple concept that has huge repercussions, positive repercussions. Yeah. So again, it's really the lovely link. I know in all the work you're doing, it's really the link between what are the changes in individuals that get reflected, expanded into social communal changes. So by changing individuals' orientations, by changing their values, by making individuals more happy, uh, valuing their life, valuing nature around them, you create a communal spark that, that builds happiness uh, in the whole community. And the kind of happiness that we're speaking of, of course, is one that is sustainable. It's, it's a level of well-being that uh, breeds peace, contentment, uh, compassion, love, um, a greater overall sense of being a healthier individual and being in a, in, in a healthier society. So I think it's important that we, that we clarify that. But the other thing I want to talk about is this, this notion of heroism in young and old, that what you're speaking right. of is not just for children that this is something that can be taught at any age to any group of people. Oh, for sure. Yes. See, again, because we, our view of heroism has been, you know, from the classics, from Agamemnon, from uh, samurai warriors, uh, from, you know, the, the battlefield or first responders, it's really been based on uh, bravery, based on uh, physical courage, and we're talking about moral courage that anyone can have, that people at any age could do heroic deeds. Uh, and that's why we're focusing on everyday heroes, ordinary people who do extraordinary things as part of their everyday life. And what it does for the person 
who is performing these small everyday acts of heroism is tremendous. I mean, it's also what we're doing for society. We're, you know, we're creating right. a culture that is, that is elevated in morality, elevated in, in positive emotion, but it can also be a useful tool for the individual who may not be living a very happy life to make a commitment to adapting this as a practice to shift, to shift uh, depression, to shift um, uh, up being in a victim consciousness. Woe is me. You know, I call it the, the proverbial pity party where right. they're not happy right. with their lives, you know? Wow. <laughs> Yeah. See, again, what's sad in America is so many people live alone. In fact, that that percentage is increasing almost annually. Uh, and living alone means you don't have somebody when you come home from a hard day at work to give you a hug, to give you a greeting. You don't have anybody to cook for. So, so adopting this everyday hero's, hero orientation means that when you go out into the world, you make that world better by smiling, by giving compliments, uh, by giving a handshake, by simply saying, hey, is there anything I can do for you? Uh, it's to really, it's to break that social isolation uh, barrier that, that, that people build around themselves. Uh, you know, you just look at people on a subway, you look at people on a bus, no one's talking to each other. It's as if there's a sign, not allowed to talk. In fact, it doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, <laughs> You know, we, sh we should all be talking. We should all be sharing. We should all be smiling at one another. Happy to be alive. Yes, and very happy to have you with us today. We are out of time, but you will be back. And I will be to, back. You will be back, and I, I, I offer you a virtual hug because you have made my day. Dr. Philip Zimbardo, to learn more, please visit Zimbardo.com or HeroicImagination.org on Facebook Dr. Philip Zimbardo, and on Twitter, Phil Zimbardo. And I want to just do a quick shout out to my everyday angels over at TogiNet who show up each and every week making us look great. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back. Please share this podcast because sharing is caring and it's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7. We'll be right back. Thank you, Lisa. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress-Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about modern day heroism. What is it in in humanity that makes us heroic? What can we do on an everyday basis to create more heroicism in our lives, to do more acts of kindness, to help others, to be more present in the moment? And my next guest, is Dr. Urban Staub. He is a professor of psychology emeritus and founding director of the Psychology of Peace and Violent program at the University of Massachusetts. His relevant books include The Psychology of Good and Evil, Why Children, Adults, and Groups Help and Harm Others, and the forthcoming book, The Roots of Goodness and Resistance to Evil, Inclusive Caring, Moral Courage, altruism born of suffering, active bystandership, and, of course, heroism, due out uh, by New York's Oxford University Press. Good morning, Dr. Staub. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Let's talk about what it takes to overcome evil. I'm particularly interested in um, the evil that exists in the world, and what is it that we can do to help mitigate some of that evil, evil shift the energy of the evil mind to uh, perhaps a less toxic kind of performance? What is this? Well, in order to overcome evil, most of us have to become what I call active bystanders. We cannot passively stand by because when people do harmful things and there is no resistance to it, there is no pushback, nobody tries to stop them. When there is silence, they tend to interpret the silence as acceptance of what they are doing and even approval. And people change as a result of their own actions. When somebody does something harmful, when a group in a country begins to harm another group, and there is no resistance to it, then they assume that other people accept it. And since they are usually guided by some kind of a vision that makes this right for them, they move further in that direction. So it is very important for us to become active. Well, what does that require? First of all, we have to notice things. We have to pay attention to things. I did a study once many years ago when I taught at Harvard where one of my students would fall down on the street in, in a street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when somebody was approaching from about 50 yards. And when this person was approaching on the other side of the street, some people, when they saw him fall down, immediately rushed over. Some people did other things. But there were some people who, after a single glance, looked away, never looked back, and some of them turned off the street at the next corner. Some of us, some people, and that includes often government officials when it involves things happening in their country or in other countries that involve harming others, where it involves extreme harm, which I call evil, uh, Simply don't take it in. Don't take the information in. So that's a first step. Another important thing is that when some people keep quiet, others look around and see that people are not speaking up, 
and they decide that there is no reason to worry and there is no reason to take action. And this is especially important because evil evolves often in small steps. This is true of genocide, this is true of spouse abuse, this is true of child abuse, that people do a smaller harmful thing, and then, as I said, they change as a result of their actions and devalue the people they harmed, and then they act in a more harmful way. So it is relatively easy to ignore the smaller steps and not take any action. So it's very important for us to be aware of this evolution and that we need to take action in in relation to relatively small events. Uh, This business of people keeping quiet and looking around has been referred to as pluralistic ignorance. And we tend to keep a poker face in public even when things happen in front of us and even more not react when things happen in the larger world. Now, in one of my early studies, I had two children hear sounds of distress, a crash and sounds of distress from another room. And young children, kindergartners and first graders, immediately started to talk to each other, saying, what's happening? What's going on? And then talking to each other, they jointly took action. By second grade, the kids stopped doing this, stopped talking to each other. And so they were less likely to take action when the two of them were together. And this has been found with adults also, that when they notice something, the larger the number of people, the less likely that any one person is going to take action. So it's important to be aware of these things and to begin to talk to each other. You know, we have very powerful potential influence on each other. In one of my other studies, I had two people sit in a room and hear a crash and sounds of distress from another room. And depending on what one person, who was my confederate, said, the likelihood that the other person took any action ranged from 25% to 100%. So we powerfully influence each other. And we can also influence things in relation to international events. One of the rare examples was the boycotts of South Africa, which were very influential in bringing apartheid to an end. Students demonstrated against corporations doing business there. Uh, Many things happened. Corporations stopped doing business there. And then internal actors, the business community in South Africa, spoke out because they were losing money, they were losing business, and they were worried about their future. So they were exerting influence on their government to change policies, and that contributed significantly to the end of apartheid. So As individuals, we can do certain things, but we can also join together, influence each other, and exert influence that will stop the evolution of evil. What you say is so important about cultivating active bystandership, because it's not something that uh, comes naturally to some because we're taught not to insert ourselves in the middle of the business of others. And we are, um, we find it difficult to, I think, calibrate 
um, intuitively where we should step in and where we shouldn't. And what I love what you're saying is it's, it's about being more aware of your surroundings. It's about understanding that if we look the other way, that we're complicitous almost in, in the evil itself. Yeah, what you are saying is very important. You, need, you know, I did research and also developed a training program for active bystandership in response to bullying in schools, harassment, yes. intimidation, harm, doing physical harm. And one of the things that we found in evaluating a whole school system is, first of all, relatively few kids act as active bystanders. This was just an evaluation study, not the training study. And also found that a number of teachers were saying that they want to leave things to kids to work out between themselves. Well, that is right up to a point. But when kids actually begin to harm each other, when they act in ways that are really problematic and endanger another person or affect the other person psychologically in a significant way, then adults have a responsibility to step in. So you are right. Making these decisions, when is it reasonable to just leave a person? And when is it important for me to take action? And I think that one of the inhibitors of active bystandership, in addition to the one I mentioned, pluralistic ignorance, diffusion of responsibility, is that people don't like to stand out in public. So when something goes on and you act, that means that you become visible. Mm. Attention focuses on you. But actually, in my own life, in the real world, experiences, I found that even when I did things that are quite unusual, like, for example, in the middle of the night, at midnight, going up to a, an apartment many years ago uh, above me because I heard distress sounds from a woman uh, and say, what's going on here? And the person said, no, it's not here. And actually, it wasn't there. A police car pulled up in front of the next building, I assume because of that, the people whom I woke up at the middle of the night were very friendly to me afterwards and really appreciated that I was trying to help. So often, beginning cautiously so that you look and evaluate events, but actually taking some steps. And and a very important thing is to finding allies. You don't have yes. to act action necessarily. If you just look around and say to other people, you know, something is going on here, we should do something that can immediately mobilize other people and people can join together and take action. I love what you just said about finding allies, and I want to talk more about that. We are going to go to a break, and when we return, we will continue the conversation with Dr. Irvin Staub, Professor of Psychology Emeritus and Founding Director of the Psychology of Peace and Violence Program at the University of Massachusetts. To learn more about Dr. Staub and his work, please visit IrvinStaub.com on Facebook, Irvin Staub, as well as on, um, you know what? There is no Twitter. God bless you, Dr. Staub. You're not on Twitter. You're, 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 you're keeping your activities and focus 
where they should be. Um, well, we're going to go to a break, and when we return, we will carry on the conversation about everyday heroes or modern-day heroism. How do we create a more heroic community in which to live? Here come those tunes. We will be right back. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast and share it profusely because we're talking about modern-day heroism with Dr. Irvin Staub, who is an author. He's written several books on the psychology of good and evil, and he's got a, a new project that he's working on as well called The Roots of Goodness and Resistance to Evil, Inclusive Caring, Moral Courage, Altruism Born of Suffering, Active Bystandership and Heroism, which is expected out this spring of 2015. Dr. Staub, prior to the break, we were talking about the diffusion, or you were talking about the diffusion of responsibility, how we do not learn. It's not a learned behavior to step up necessarily and be responsible for the welfare of others. We're taught as children to mind our own business, to take care of our own needs, to be responsible for ourselves. And why is this good to create responsibility, feeling collectively responsible for the greater good? Well, you know, the kind of active bystanders that I was talking about is not going to happen without us feeling responsible. Now, there are two ways that a person can come to feel responsible. One of them is that circumstances, rather than diffusing responsibility, focus responsibility on you. 
when there are many people around, when things happen on a societal level, the responsibility can diffuse. No single person might feel that responsible. If you are alone in a situation, or as in case of one of my studies, when we told a child if something happens in the other room, you are in charge, take action, that makes it more likely that the person takes action. But when people have developed an internal feeling of responsibility, that also makes it more likely that that they take action. I have done a series of studies studying what I call, it's a big word, pro-social value orientation, which includes a positive view of human beings, a feeling of responsibility, and a feeling of responsibility for others' welfare, a personal feeling of responsibility. Well, how does that come about? That can come about certainly through socialization. Uh, Children who are raised in a warm and affectionate way uh, but also are guided by positive values that tells them that we are responsible for others. For example, if the consequences of their behavior is pointed out to children, that is a very important way to make them both more empathic and to feel more responsible. And another important way is to get engaged children in helping behavior, in helping others in a variety of ways. So learning by doing and what I call natural socialization, creating opportunities for children to engage in behavior that benefits others, has been found both in a number of studies that I did and also in a cross-cultural study of six cultures that some social anthropologists, John and Beatrice Whiting, did to contribute to altruistic and caring behavior. So that's one way to come to feel responsible. Uh, Another way, actually, is, in a way, sort of the opposite. You know, usually when we talk about the development of caring and hurting and altruism and the feeling of responsibility, we talk about positive socialization, which is what I just described. So what happens when people are victimized? What happens when people suffer greatly, victimized many children, tragically, are abused in their families, some physically, and some are emotionally neglected. There is no interest in the child, which actually has at least as bad effect and in some ways worse effects than physical abuse. Because when a child is physically abused, then sometimes that, can, that child can still receive caring and affection. But when there is no interest in the child by a parent, then the child doesn't receive emotional sustenance. So what happens? In the past, people have studied children and people and adults who are victimized, and they found that many of them tend to become hostile, and many of them come to see other people as hostile and feel that they need to defend themselves and engage in what I call defensive violence. But if you look around, you see, and I I won't describe how I first got in contact with this, but I became aware that a lot of people who have suffered greatly want to help others and prevent other suffering and engaged in studying mass violence and the prevention of mass violence. So what happens? I think what happens is that when people 
have certain redeeming experiences, either during or after their victimization. So while they are harmed, somebody reaches out to them and tries to help them. Or they have an opportunity to help themselves. And both of these things make an important difference. If somebody reaches out to you and tries to help you as you are harmed, you may feel that the world is not like what the perpetrators of harm make it out to be, that actually there is love and caring in the world. If you are able in some way to help yourself or others, then you come to feel that I have some capacity to influence events. I have some power. So people who have suffered and who have certain experiences, including afterwards, they have an opportunity to heal, they are provided support, they receive caring, their suffering may become a source of not focusing on others' hostility, but empathy and caring for others and the feeling of responsibility for others' welfare. This is extremely important to provide these redeeming, potentially redeeming experiences, because with so many people victimized and suffering in so many ways, if this did not happen, the world would become a worse and worse place. But fortunately, this does happen. And so there is a lot of evidence for this happening. Now, I may also want to add what you, what that you're pointing I out I, I just in want, Rwanda you know, and other places doctors, on reconciliation. Dr. I, I just want to jump in here and say one thing here, that about um, the, the, the concept of making meaning out of the suffering and how we can transform what is a traumatic experience into one that is post-traumatically growth oriented and i think this is what i hear you speaking about that it's not to make light of the suffering that has happened but it's how to constructively use what has happened to create something better for the self and better for mankind in general and for humanity exactly uh it is the case that in the last decade and a half or so People, in addition to studying the negative consequences of trauma, also have begun to study post-traumatic growth, as they call it. And yet you can think of altruism born of suffering, which I have studied as a thing in itself, uh, as one form of post-traumatic growth. Um, and uh, you know, we, one of my students and I, in writing about this, have identified some of the things that contribute to the development of this form of post-traumatic growth, altruism born of suffering. But you are absolutely right. And that involves, that helps people make meaning out of their experience. Because really, how do you create out of terrible and inner way really meaningless experience in itself what's the meaning of a child being abused in the place where this child should be safe in his or her home what's the meaning in a minority in a society become a victim of genocide or mass killing uh, the meaning that can be one meaning that can be created out of it is to use one's experience 
to prevent others suffering, to help others who suffer, to try to create a better world. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is the work that I, I work quite a bit with veterans who have uh, returned from war. And the challenge becomes how to help these young men and women who have been sent off to war, um, often for multiple tours of duty and return home um, in, invisibly wounded to such a place where they find it hard to function. They become uh, addicted, self-medicated, suicidal, and yet uh, th- there's one thing that can't be extinguished, which is the human spirit. And if we can help uh, reignite the, the pilot flame of this human spirit in, in people, we, we save not only them, but we save part of humanity. And this is, I, I think this is phenomenal uh, work that you are doing. And I invite you to come back and share more. Um, we have run out of time once again to learn more about Dr. Irvin Staub. Please visit IrvinStaub.com on Facebook, Irvin Staub. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, and my guests today, Dr. Philip Zimbardo and Dr. Irvin Staub, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. And I wish to give a shout-out of thanks to our producers who make us shine each and every week. We are grateful. Go out and make it a great week. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on Toginet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Each week, Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the Toginet Radio Network.